Welcome back, beloved. Today we're continuing on with our study, the book of Daniel, a simple reading and explanation, chapter 6. Just to review, chapter 5 was the fall of Babylon. Babylon had fallen. Daniel witnessed that collapse uh, when Belshazzar was throwing that feast. And now Darius the Mede has taken over the kingdom. And so Daniel chapter 6 starts out just like that. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps, princes, over the kingdom. So Darius is immediately setting up a very simple form of government. Now, really quickly, that character Darius, history doesn't have too much to say on him. We're not doing an extremely deep dive, uh, so I don't need to go into it too deep. However, uh, Darius, some people say that might be another name for Cyrus or a different king named Gubaru. Um, that being said, the bottom line is he is the king over the land of Babylon uh, at the time, which has now just been conquered by Medo-Persia. This is going from the gold head in the Daniel, you know, chapter two statue, which was Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're flowing into the silver chest and arms, which is the Medo-Persian empire. And so it starts with, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners. So it's a really simple government. Darius is at the top, you have three commissioners right underneath him. They're like governors and underneath them, like 120 local tribal leaders, right? And that's how he's going to keep peace and keep the government in shape. And it says Daniel was one of the commissioners. So already Daniel is, is vaulted to a high position in Medo-Persia, just like he was in Babylon. He's clearly God's chosen vessel at this time and God is preserving him and keeping him. He also was made third in the kingdom of Babylon right before it fell. And perhaps they noticed that when they came in and conquered. I mean, obviously they could see he would have been known throughout all of Babylon as a wise man, as a man who had the spirit of the holy gods in him, they would have said. And so many good things were said about Daniel. So he is immediately put in a position of authority. And it says he's in this authority with the other commissioners so that the satraps might be accountable to them. So the princes of the land, all the leaders would be accountable to them. So that could be one reason, you know, this whole chapter is about Daniel in the lion's den uh, and how they get, you know, selfish and they want to get rid of Daniel. Because they're accountable to him and Daniel is a holy man, he might be keeping them, maybe not too strict, but very accountable. He's not going to sweep anything under the rug. And the whole goal of that was so that the king might not suffer loss. And so it goes on to say, then Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners. So even just the three commissioners, which were the most trusted people in the entire kingdom, Daniel sets himself above the other two and all the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And there's sort of uh, only one obvious interpretation of that, but sort of two understandings of that. First of all, we as Christians know Daniel had the Holy Spirit. But everyone in Babylon and Medo-Persia, when they were looking at Daniel and saying, he has the spirit of the holy gods in him, they, they can't recognize the spirit of Christ. They can't recognize the spirit of Yahweh, right? Like they don't 
understand that. So we see it as the Holy Spirit because our eyes are open. They just saw it as an extraordinary spirit. He has an amazing attitude. He is wise. They saw all the fruits of the spirit, obviously. And it was so obvious. His witness and testimony was so obvious to them. They said he had an extraordinary uh, spirit. And it says the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Really, just like Joseph uh, in you know the book of Genesis or Mordecai in Esther, he's vaulted to a position right under the king. This is a common way God choose. You know, God God has done this several times throughout the Bible with His chosen vessels, uh, and it's it's quite interesting that He's so trusted. The king plans to appoint him over the entire kingdom. He's about to be the vice president of this, you know, land of Babylon here. And this extraordinary spirit, I I think honestly, in these first three verses, whenever we come to Daniel 6, I really want to harp on this. Whenever we come to Daniel 6, if you're anything like me, you're thinking Daniel in the lion's den. I want to be like Daniel, like I'm not, you know, as soon as I study Daniel chapter 6, I'm overwhelmed with guilt. I'm, I'm nothing like Daniel. I fall so short compared to Daniel, but there's a desire there. I, I want to be like Daniel. I want to learn from Daniel and learn from scripture and be like him, right? Like that is the goal. We want to be like Christ and we want to, you know, behave like the saints behave, right? And the prophets above all are, are very holy and eminent saints. So they have much that we can learn from. That being said, when I read Daniel 6, I always think, well, I want to be like Daniel. I want to be courageous and and not be afraid to be thrown in the lion's den. And I don't believe that's the most heroic thing in this chapter anymore. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I do not believe him just being thrown in the lion's den is the, the most noble act he does or that the spirit does in him in this chapter. I think it's within these first three verses, because when you understand this on the timeline, It's really profound and it's really humbling. Let me explain. He has an extraordinary spirit. He is working a secular job. There is no job more secular than serving the king of Babylon and now serving the king of Medo-Persia. These are totally secular, godless nations, and he's doing non-ministry-like work. He's just running their kingdoms. He could be calculating taxes and, you know, uh, dealing with boring things all day, and it could be very easy. I know if I were in his position, I might ask, why am I doing this? What's the point of this? I might grumble against the Lord. He's been there 70 years. The other, the other day, I complained in my heart about a 12-hour shift at a trauma hospital. And here Daniel is 70 years in captivity and serving in secular jobs, and he still has an extraordinary spirit. He's going on 90 years old at this point. And I'm, I'm also, I, I've got two jobs, one in the military, one private sector. I'm, I'm, I've always been a numbers guy ever since I was a kid, and I'm in banking now. And so I wanted to run the numbers on this because here's essentially the numbers I put together. This is really shocking. In the whole book of Daniel, there's maybe 10 or so, being generous, major events accomplished by Daniel. You know, interpreting dreams, getting visions, witnessing the downfall of Babylon, being thrown in the lion's den, having his life put in jeopardy like he's going to be slaughtered by King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe 10, 15 tops dramatic days where you would read it and say, wow, the Lord really used him. 
But when you look at that in the context that he was in captivity for roughly 70 years, here's the numbers. It's incredible. 70 years times 360 days. That's a Jewish calendar year. That's 25,200 days. So for every one of these major jaw-dropping events, like a, a prophecy or having his, it being thrown in the lion's den, there's seven years of just normal days where Daniel is faithfully serving the Lord, living out his life, abstaining from the sexual immorality and drunkenness and lusts of Babylon and Medo-Persia, which very similar to America now, right? Like we're, we're not persecuted here. We have a very good life here. And we need to make sure we're abstaining from the, the licentiousness, the excessiveness, the gluttony, the drinking, like just the overabundance. Not that we're not supposed to eat and we can't drink or anything like that. But just day in and day out, he's working a secular job. For every one major event, there are seven years. For every one exciting day, Daniel worked 2,520 days in a secular job. And so as I study this more and more and more, I realize what set Daniel up to be so mightily used by God was his faithful service in the small things. And that's why I think the, the apostles, they pretty much lay down in every epistle our duties of day-to-day -day work. Look at Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, he's saying, I'm reminding you, your toil, it's not in vain in the Lord. Galatians 6 says, you know, your work, it's not in vain. Don't lose heart. Uh, Galatians 6, don't lose heart in doing good. In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. They needed to be encouraged. Colossians 3, very straightforward. It says, whatever you do, any job, and there's no excuse because there's no job more secular than running the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon is used as, as the picture of evil in all of the Bible, as the kingdom that represents evil in all the Bible. And Daniel, in a sense, is serving that because that's God's will for him. He just submits to that, even though he probably can't understand it most days. And so Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It's not your boss. If you're born again, no matter what your job is, no matter how silly it is, you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm preaching to myself first because there are many days I'm working a boring shift and, and I'm thinking, oh, I'd rather be on the street preaching or I'd rather be in church or I'd rather be reading my Bible. But right now in that moment, God wants me at my job and I'm serving Christ there. Jesus said in Luke 16, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And so there's so much more to Daniel 6 than Daniel just being thrown in the lion's den. He is serving faithfully his God and his country for decades. So moving on, he's serving, he's about to be appointed to vice president. And so naturally, he, whenever you succeed, people are going to be jealous. We all have to guard our hearts from jealousy, whether you're born again or not. That's a, that's a, a fleshly, it's a, a lust of the flesh, right? And so we have to abstain from that. And it happens in all of us. And when we notice it, we just have to pray for forgiveness and strength. But look what happens. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation 
against Daniel. Not because they you know, had any reason, they were jealous of him. It was They were trying to find a ground of accusation in regard to government affairs, his job. But they couldn't find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption in as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. This is an amazing commendation. They searched as much as they could. They couldn't find any negligence, any corruption. He was uh, walking in all things pure in a sense, right? And so it says, then these men said, we're not going to find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. This is incredible. Uh, this is an incredible commendation by your enemies. They're basically saying, Daniel, you know, is not going to do anything wrong. He's not going to steal. He's not going to lie. He's not going to be negligent. We have to find something against the law of his God. We have to force him to choose between the law of man and the law of God. And that's amazing when people can say that about you, because here's why. The law of God is perfect. And so if people can only find something against you concerning that law, you always know you're on the right side. And so, you know, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. We cannot stop everyone from accusing us, but what you can do is make them a liar when they accuse you. If they're going to accuse you no matter what, Make them liars for doing it by being blameless. And once again, in the New Testament, the apostles pick this up. It says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And so, and that's at the second coming of Christ. It says, keep a good conscience, be blameless, but you're still going to be slandered. First Peter chapter 2. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, just like Daniel, a stranger in Babylon, we're strangers in this entire world. It says, you know, abstain from those fleshly lusts. They wage war among your, uh, against your soul. He says, keep your behavior excellent, blameless among the nations, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Jesus said, let them see your good deeds and glorify God, your Father in heaven. Philippians is another exhortation. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so you will prove yourself to be blameless. The qualification to be a pastor is to be blameless in, in your local community, not in the sense that everyone agrees with your ideology or theology, because if the world agreed with scripture, uh, that wouldn't make any sense, right? The, the world is hostile to the things of God, but blameless in the sense that there's no habitual sin you're walking in, you're not known for corruption or any negligence, at least outwardly, just like Daniel. And so we're to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so first and foremost, we can learn of Daniel's faithful service, that he's still going to be accused. And when his accusers uh, look for something to blame on him, they realize he is blameless. And we can look up to that second. All scripture points us towards Christ. So Daniel 6, 4, and 5, they're looking to accuse him. And we have here several foreshadowings. Many of the prophets lived through experiences that foreshadowed what Christ lived through because Christ is a prophet. You know, Christ is the son of God. He's God in human flesh, but he's also a man. And as a human, he has the office of prophet, 
priest and king. As a king, he's our ruler. As a priest, he speaks to God on our behalf. He intercedes for us. And as a prophet, he gives us the true words of God. He is, you know, God in human flesh. He speaks the words of God. And so as, a, as these prophets speak the word of God as well, um, they undergo things. And there's many foreshadowings in the life of Daniel and Jeremiah and Joseph and pretty much all the prophets that point us towards Christ. And so I wanted to bring you to Mark chapter 14. Just like Daniel is being accused by uh, the Medes and the Persians, um, we have to remember Satan is, you know, the father of all lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. Christ was, of course, you know, Christ came into his own creation. He was born under the law. And so the devil sent accusers against him. Look, it says the chief priests, the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. Many were giving false testimony against him but their testimony was not consistent. And so we see a foreshadowing there of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in just that Daniel was accused falsely, so was Christ, okay? And there's many other foreshadowings in this chapter we'll see. And so then it says, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. So they're all gathering around. It's a big group of the commissioners and the lower level satraps. And they're saying, oh, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, they're really buttering them up. They're, they're sweetening the deal here. They say, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction, a law, that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man, so any god, any other god, or any man, like an interceder between god and man, or a, a false priest or something, any god or man, any petition, any prayer, besides you. So he, they were basically saying, you get, we want you to be god for 30 days. That's what they want. We want you to, it's just like in Daniel chapter 3, where you had to worship the image or you would be killed. Daniel 6 is a mirror image of that chapter where if you don't pray to the king or if you pray to God, then you're killed, right? And so they're saying, make a law. Uh, and, and this is all to trap Daniel, but they're not forthcoming about that. So they make a law for the entire nation. If anyone prays to any God or petitions, any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, uh, they shall be cast into the lion's den. And you really see how silly pagan religion is here. If there is a God that's above all gods, then this king shouldn't be God for 30 days. Like, it's just like, why 30 days? It, uh, pagan religions, when they're really studied, they make absolutely no sense. There's no logic, logic to them at all. But that's what they wanted to do. So you, King Darius, they appeal to his pride and they really kind of trick him in a sense. This king is, he thinks he's God. He's actually pretty foolish in this whole chapter, you're going to see. Um, and so they're like, if they don't pray to you, we want you to be God. I mean, he must feel amazing here. They're all claiming, you know, we want you to be God for 30 days. All the nobles of the land are saying this. Uh, and if anyone prays to anyone, cast them into the lion's den. And they say, now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians. And from what I've read and what I've heard about that is 
they wanted it set up. The Medo-Persian government was set up in a way that once a law was set up, it could never be revoked. And the reason for that is so that you wouldn't have arbitrary laws. It would bind the king to the law. It would bind the people to the law. It was serious. And maybe it was also so that the king was seen as divine. Because if you set up a law and then you change your mind and go back, you don't really look as divine as well. So that's what they wanted. They wanted to trap him so that he would make this law and not be able to revoke it. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. And it's it's pretty amazing. I want to bring you to a few verses here. The way Daniel responds to this is a great example of how we can respond in examples in our life. And, and there's, there's so many prophetic parallels to these last few verses I want to pull up. But the Bible, you know, it, it shows us how to walk on the narrow road, not going to the left or the right. The, the way we keep our way pure is by listening to the word of God. The word of God is clear. Christians' relationship to our government, it says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king, as to one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. It is very clear. This, my generation, this social justice, we need to rise up and overthrow the government. That's what Jesus would want. Or God is against injustice, and so we need to rise up and burn a city down. Um, I'm fine with peaceful protesting, but it has to be truly, genuinely peaceful. The clear account of Scripture is that is absolutely not of God. Christians are to submit to their government. Daniel not only submits to his government, he blamelessly serves his government, and his government is evil. Just like Jesus said, you can pay taxes to Rome because all governments are set up by God. Even an evil government is allowed by God. It could be a judgment. God allowed Babylon to conquer Israel and and the Jewish people. That was allowed by God. And so Daniel was allowed to serve that government. He couldn't take part in their temple worship. He couldn't take part in their sin. He took part in running the kingdom, probably relatively mundane government affairs. So we are to submit to governments, even if we think they're evil. However, the, the, the sum of your word is truth, the psalmist said. Not some of your word is truth, the sum of your word. All of God's word is true. And so it is true that we must submit to government as followers of God because he's sovereign over all. Nothing surprises him. But it's also written, we must obey God rather than men. And so when a government gets so evil that they begin changing the laws that are meant to punish evil and uh, you know reward the good, that they reward evil and they punish good and they make a law that's clearly against Christ or against God or against something clear in Scripture. At that point, then we have scriptural authority that we can disobey. We must obey God rather than men. But we have to be very careful we're not doing it for some selfish reason, but for the glory of God. And so that's the moral application there. And and you're going to see Daniel follows this to the T. There's also a prophetic and eschatological picture here. I want to show you this. Uh, And I did this in Daniel chapter 3 as well. You know, Solomon said, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Guys, nothing changes. And so just like the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians, 
took the law of the land or the, the law of man and tried to set it up to get them to either worship an idol or pray to a false god. And that's what exposed them as true believers. That is what the Antichrist will do at the time of the end. Daniel 7 says that the Antichrist exalts himself. He speaks against the Most High. He makes alterations, changes in times and in law. Second Thessalonians talks about the ministry of the Antichrist, and he says there will be an apostasy, like a, a global turning away from the truth, a rebellion against Christ, God, and truth. That will come first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so, you know, you get to Revelation 13, it's very straightforward. Revelation 13, 17, talking about you have to worship the image of the beast, like Daniel 3. Uh, and then Revelation 13, 17, you have to get the mark of the beast or you cannot buy or sell. That's just like Daniel 6. There's going to be a law towards the, the end of time that if you do not worship a false statue, the image of the beast, and if you do not uh, you know, receive the mark of the beast, there's going to be a law somewhere on the books, right, that you cannot buy or sell. If you can't buy or sell, and that's based on a government and an evil king, the Antichrist, that is a law. You cannot buy or sell unless you get the mark of the beast, the name of the beast, or the number of his name, which Revelation 14 very clearly says, if you do any of that, you go to the lake of fire, right? So there will be a law that says you have to do something specifically against scripture. And then just like uh, all the saints of all time, because nothing changes, we will have to obey God rather than man. And so I also wanted to give you some recent examples of this, because we understand that the devil in the New Testament is called the little g God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He, The kingdoms of this world are given to him in a sense, but even the devil is God's devil. He does not have any sovereign authority, but he does have delegated authority. God allows him a season until Christ's second coming. And so, yes, sometimes when a nation gets wicked, they turn the laws of man against the law of God. Here's a very famous recent one. They're in Israel. Israel is very anti-Messiah uh, being Jesus, anti-Christ in the sense that Jesus is the Christ. They're waiting for another Messiah. And so two Neset members of their government recently proposed legislation. It's not approved yet to outlaw sharing the gospel in Israel and send the violators to prison. I read or watched the thing on it. It's like one year if they're an adult and two years in prison if they're children just for sharing the gospel. And you'll see, I mean, go, go read the book of Acts. We must obey God rather than men. The book of Acts is written like 2,000 years ago. And here we are today, and, and the Jewish people, the Pharisees in Israel, are still going after people preaching the gospel of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here's another one. Uh, in America, Minnesota has advanced a uh, trans refugee bill that opponents say would strip custody from non-consenting parents. So with the LGBTQ agenda in America, I do believe at some point in our life, it, it is looking like it's trending the way of Europe. We're going to be getting rid of free speech, maybe soon, maybe not soon. Nobody knows the exact times of these things. But certainly I see this movement trying to warp and change the very words that we can use where we can't talk about sin or hell or judgment, preaching the gospel. We can't warn people who are about to mutilate their body, young children, that they're doing something that is against the law of God and that they're, they're just confused. Um, and so this bill could potentially strip custody away from a parent 
who is a Christian and says, no, no, my child doesn't have authority to say they're a boy or to say they're a girl. That's a God-given right. And so you just see, it's just very, you know, nothing changes. The law of God and the law of man intersect when we have wicked governments. The Bible is clear, righteousness exalts a nation, but wickedness destroys it. And so uh, very straightforward. Law of God versus law of man, how we are to behave towards our government, we are to be in submission to our government until the time that they grow so wicked that they want us to sin against our God. And then we obey God and not man. And there are some amazing prophetic impl- implications as well. And so now I want to move on to our next portion of scripture, back to the historical account of Daniel. It says, uh, and if you're watching on the screen, I highlighted some key points here. It says, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, so now Daniel is aware he's about to potentially be thrown into the lion's den. So Daniel knows, he's aware, I'm sure he's nervous, he's human. He enters his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open, very important, I'll break this down in a minute, toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. And the temple was a picture of Christ, right? All, all, of, all of scripture is pointing us towards Christ. So we really need to dig that out and make sure we understand that. But he prays towards the temple. I'll explain that in a minute. And he continues kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying. His response is prayer. That is huge. His response is prayer. That's what he does. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't start to freak out. He doesn't run away, nor does he go to the town square and start praying publicly. He just prays at home and gives thanks before his God. He's thankful. He must be thankful for this trial. He must have a robust understanding of scripture and a robust understanding that God is putting him through this trial for his sovereign purposes. He's, he's an old man at this point. He's been through it. He understands that God is going to keep him. And so he gives him thanks. This is incredible. As he had, very important, had been doing previously. He didn't become a saint because all of a sudden he was in a dramatic lion's den situation. He was a saint. He had worked up a, a virtuous life. He had put practices in place. Every day he was praying three times. This was his manner of life. He wasn't just like, oh, I'm in trouble. Better, better take this serious now. He wasn't asleep. He was watching and praying his whole life. And that's so important because my affections, and I'm sure your affections, we wax and wane, right? And, and we blow hot and cold. And I'm sure Daniel had a nature like ours as well. But we want to look up to these men and we want to look up to Christ who said, you know, watch and pray so that you do not enter into times of temptation. And so the reason now we're just breaking down this verse, Daniel 6 verse 10, about Daniel praying towards Jerusalem. Number one, I think this reveals he had a robust knowledge of scripture. Why was he praying three times a day? That was, a, from what I hear, a common practice. But look at Psalm 55, which would have been written, you know, Daniel would have had access to the Psalms. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord will save me, evening and morning and at noon, three times a day. I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For they are many who strive with me. Many were striving with Daniel. So I believe he has a robust knowledge of Scripture. The Word of God is in him. He is a prophet. And prayer. You know, th- those are the two most essential means of grace. The Word of God, where God speaks to us, and prayer, where we respond back to God. I also want to break down why he's praying towards Jerusalem and what this means for us, because it's very important. 
When Solomon dedicated the temple, you have to understand the tabernacle that Moses built and the temple that Solomon built both point us towards Christ. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, he cried out a prayer that I believe is so clearly talking about many situations the Jewish people would be in and children of God would be in, but specifically Daniel's. Listen to it. It says, you know, Solomon's dedicating the temple and he says, Oh Lord, listen to the supplication, the prayer of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. So there's how they should pray. Pray towards it, just like Daniel's doing. And then if you read 1 Kings chapter 8, you know, you're going to see there are several times where he talks about specifically when your people get carried off to captivity. Because that was a judgment in Deuteronomy for breaking the law. So he says, you know, in verse 50 of chapter 8, forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions, what they've transgressed against you. Make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive. That's just one of many examples. He's praying for the people that would be taken captive that they may have compassion on them. 1 Kings 8.27, it specifically says, you know, will God dwell on the earth? Solomon's talking about his temple. Because heaven and the highest heaven can't contain God, how much less this house which I have built. The temple was so that God would dwell on the earth. And it's written of the temple that God put his name there. And so when Jesus came, it says, I say, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, New Testament, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. And so you see, when, when Daniel is praying towards the temple, he's praying towards the God of Jacob. He's praying towards Yahweh, the Lord. Christ had not been born yet. When Christ was born, he's saying, I'm saying you something greater than the temple is here. God is dwelling on the earth. He's dwelling in Christ. Colossians says all of the Godhead, all of God dwelt in Christ in bodily form. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In 1 Kings 8, going back to talking about the temple, uh, Solomon says that your eyes may be open towards this house night and day toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there to listen to the prayer. So the temple uh, it was written of the Lord that he put his name there. You see, Jesus has the name of the Lord. Jesus, the name of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Like Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. It says, for this reason also, Philippians, New Testament, God highly exalted Jesus because of his death on the cross, because of his obedience. He bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Daniel 6.10 is an amazing verse just to point us in the right direction. When we now, we pray towards Christ. Christ has ascended. He is in heaven. And so very important. He was praying towards Yahweh. It wasn't just a, a building and some stones to him. That was where God dwelt. That was where God revealed his name. And now something greater than the temple is here. God dwells in Christ and Christ reveals the name of God to us. Christ reveals to us who God really is. And that's who we pray towards. So very important, very straightforward. So now we're going to move on to verse 11. So he had prayed three times a day. He was giving thanks before his God. Maybe he was doing it for several days. I don't know. 
Then these men came by agreement. So they all agreed. They're all, you know, uh, coming against the Lord and against his anointed children here. And so then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. So he's praying. He's asking the Lord for mercy and grace. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. They try and they deceive him again here. They say, did you not sign an injunction that any man, they don't mention Daniel, they just say any man who makes a petition to any God or man beside you, O king, for 30 days. Didn't you sign that thing where they need to be cast into the lion's den as if they didn't know? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. So he's slammed in there. This is an iron gate here. He just says, yes, it may not be revoked. Like this is done, essentially. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. So it's very like snarky remark. He's not one of us. He's one of the exiles from Judah. He pays no attention to you, O king. And man, I can just see the serpent from the garden in that. The way the devil speaks, the way he slanders, he goes so above and beyond. Like God did give us a law in the garden. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil comes along. He says, well, didn't God say you can't eat any fruit from any tree? Like how harsh is God? Like why can't you have some fruit over there? And it's like God never even said that. I hear people all the time when they want to curse the doctrines of God or the rules of God on the church, they go way above what God has said to make their argument. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They're like, Daniel pays no attention to you, O king. Like, Daniel was faithfully serving this king blamelessly. He pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but he keeps making his petition three times a day. Then this is where the king, who was God, air quotes that you can't see for 30 days, uh, this king becomes a fool. So as soon as the king heard this statement, he is deeply distressed. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. So we don't know exactly what he's doing, but he's looking through the books, making sure there's no exceptions. He's probably talking to all the commissioners, all the satraps. Like, is there anything we can do? This is Daniel. This is my second in command. For all we know, I mean, if Darius is a good king, he's talking to his second command like daily. And he he loves Daniel. The Bible says, you know, when a man's ways please the Lord, and Daniel's did, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So even though even though Daniel uh, won't worship Darius, Darius still loves him in a sense. And he's he's laboring to save Daniel. And then these men, it says, came by agreement and said to the king. So I think there's a clear inference here that these men had to come back and basically say like, hey, I know you're looking for a loophole, but recognize, O king, it's a law of the Medes and Persians, no injunction or statute which the king established may be changed. So you see some back and forth. He's trying to save him, and then the people come again, and they're like, hey, you got to recognize this, O king. And so the king is sort of, uh, you know, his arms are twisted here. And we see another foreshadowing of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate, the Gentile leader, was sort of forced to condemn Jesus. Uh, there was There's many, many, many verses and separate occasions where he sort of labors and explains to the Jewish crowd, a bunch of people like, hey, I don't see any guilt. Look at Matthew 
Matthew 27, and when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. So Pilate was trying to accomplish that Jesus would not be crucified. He, he was saying, I think he's innocent. So then when he realized he wasn't accomplishing that uh, and, and a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And several other verses, he said, I, I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate labored a little for Jesus. He saw that he was blameless, but it was his own people, the religious elite, that wanted him wanted him crucified. And so moving on now to, to Daniel 6.16, 6, the king realizes his arm is, is twisted behind his back. So then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Nothing is written about Daniel fighting back or anything like that. Uh, the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Perhaps Darius had heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. I'm sure Daniel was constantly preaching about the living God to him. Like he knew Daniel constantly served that God. And so I'm sure people in the kingdom were talking about the God of Daniel. Darius calls him your God. So even though Darius might believe in him in a sense, he might have a knowledge of him. Uh, it's not a saving faith or a saving relationship because he calls him your God. He says, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. I'm not sure if Darius was really confident of this statement or if he was just trying to make Daniel feel better. But then it says, and here's another foreshadowing uh, of Christ. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. So a massive stone is brought there. He seals it so that nobody can move it without interrupting the, the, the king's seal. And so that everyone understands that nothing is to be changed. Like Daniel is to be kept in that lion's den. Uh, that, that word den has the idea of a pit, like a pit in the ground. We have no idea how many lions were there, but from uh, several opinions of, of much better and more godly men and better preachers than me seem to say somewhere between like seven and ten very hungry lions. And so it's sealed with this signet ring. There's a massive stone rolled over it. Same thing with Jesus. They went in his grave. They made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, I understand foreshadowings of Christ by themselves are, in a sense, very weak. However, when you read the Bible as a whole and you see the specific prophecies all pointing to Christ, then the foreshadowings that he specifically mentioned, it's not unrealistic to look at some of these and say, yeah, I do see a lot of foreshadowings there. We can't really be dogmatic about it, but when we understand the Bible as a whole, everything Jesus said in the law and the prophets and Moses we're all about him. It's all pointing us towards Christ. He's the scarlet cord that runs through the whole Bible. And so, you know, now Daniel is in the lion's den. There is a stone sealed over it. And then it says, the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him. That could mean women. It could mean, you know, uh, there was certainly no food. The king is gone from being a god to being a fool. Now he is an anxious mess. He's fasting, no entertainment. It says his sleep fled before him. And I couldn't help but see another kind of correlation in Matthew 27 uh, with Pontius Pilate and Jesus uh, while Pontius is sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sends him a message and says, have nothing to do with that righteous man, Jesus Christ. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So she is, 
you know, suffering in her dreams, you know, the, the father from heaven, you know, could be sending a, a warning about their, what they're about to do, essentially. Um, and in Daniel 6, 18, Darius, his sleep fl uh, flees from him. He is anxious. And so I just see a lot of correlations between, you know, this person trying to save Daniel and, and, and Darius trying to save Daniel and, and Pontius Pilate trying to save Jesus. And I just wanted to bring them to our attention the bottom line, all of scripture points to Jesus. Jesus said, the I mean, Revelation says that the spirit of prophecy, you know, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have to just keep Christ at the forefront. So then it says, then the king arose at dawn. So he's anxious. He's not sleeping. He arises at dawn at the break of day and went in haste. I mean, the king shouldn't do anything in haste. He is nervous and he goes to the lion's den when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. He's in anguish. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And look what Daniel says. This is incredible. Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. No anger in his heart, total submission to the sovereignty and will of God. He says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they've not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you. He's saying, I'm innocent toward you, O king. I've committed no crime, and I've committed no crime against my God, breaking his law, and I haven't broke your law or any law that actually matters or should be held on me either. He's saying, I'm innocent before you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to obey my God. And my God has vindicated me. He sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth to show you essentially that I, I was, you know, it, it's a total vindication for Daniel. It's a total vindication of God's sovereignty and God's man and God graciously upholding and, and, and just sovereignly working throughout this entire situation. And I just love God's grace shed abroad in the heart of Daniel here. He says, O king, live forever. There's no anger of him towards Darius. It's so pure. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, love your enemies. Expect nothing in return. Do good and land. Your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Daniel had a sense of his sin. All throughout the book of Daniel, he's confessing his sin. Daniel knew that any man who sinned against him, he had sinned greater against God, and God had forgiven and been merciful to him. And so Daniel is a very merciful man. He who receives mercy can give out mercy. He who's been forgiven much, Jesus said, they're going to forgive much. They're going to love much. And so then the king was very pleased. I'm sure he was super, just his countenance lifted. And he gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel, this is like the key to the whole chapter here. Very important. Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever was found on him, because this is it. This is the most important sentence in my opinion. You know, it, my opinion doesn't matter much, but I really want to hone in on this point because he had trusted in his God. We please God by faith. Listen, it's so important to understand why these words, every word of God is pure. All of this was because he had trusted in his God. Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are in the fire, it says they, they did not serve or worship any God except their own. They put their trust in him. They put their trust in the angel, in, in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel. They put their trust in him. This is what I want us to understand. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33, it shows us exactly how Daniel does all these amazing things, how he serves in captivity for 70 years, how he faithfully, you know, just just works for for Babylon and Medo-Persia, how he loves his enemies, how he has courage to pray in rebellion to the law of man and follow the law of God, how he goes into the lion's den and, and comes out unscathed. We hear nothing of Daniel's anxiety on the night he's in the lion's den. I bet he uh, you know, slept like a baby, whereas Darius is the anxious one. And how did he do all that? That's not natural. That, that's, it almost sounds unattainable by faith. Hebrews 11 talks about the hall of faith, just ama- the hall of saints, David and, Sam and Samuel, Gideon, Barak, so many different ones, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, so important, shut the mouths of lions. It's revealed in Daniel 3 and in Daniel 6 and in Hebrews 11.33 in the New Testament. By faith, they shut the mouth of lions. You see, it goes all the way back to Abraham. He is the father of the children. He's the father of the faith in a sense. And it's written of Abraham. Then he believed in the Lord. He believed. He had faith. And the Lord, he reckoned, credited it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, before Abraham did any works, decades before he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac as a proof of his faith. No, he just believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4. He says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God. He had faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. And Galatians chapter 3 says, Therefore, be sure it is those who are of faith, Jew or Gentile, anyone who has faith, true faith, true saving faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, anyone who has faith, you are sons of Abraham. And so this is what we need to understand. As we study Daniel chapter 6, you can easily fall into what I fell into this week, where I say, Lord, I don't measure up to Daniel in any way, shape, or form. It's just not there, when I look at my life and I look at, and I look at my heart and I examine myself, it's just not there. What? How on earth could I grow? Like I, I want to be more like these men. I want to be pleasing to you. How on earth? This, this is impossible. You have to understand, faith is a gift, and it is not the amount of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. Even the smallest faith, the mustard seed is enough. But the faith has to be in Christ and not in your good works. Ephesians chapter 2 says, by grace you have been saved. Just by the grace and sovereign mercy of God. No one deserves salvation. By grace you've been saved. Past tense. Through faith. God saved you by using faith. That is the spiritual tool. Grace is the bow. Faith is the arrow that pierces your heart, right? Through faith and that not of yourselves. I cannot drum up faith. I can't just just work it out. I can't do that. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it is recognizing and understanding. That's why the word of God, we need to study it. It's recognizing and understanding there is nothing good in me. Like Paul said, in me, in my flesh, there's nothing good. Through faith, he shut the mouth of lions. And faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. The story of Daniel and all his graces and all his great works glorify God. It's not a result of work salvation so that no one can boast. We can't say we've done anything to earn our faith or to earn our grace or earn our salvation. For we're his workmanship. We are a new creation in, created in Christ Jesus. 
Now, we were created, like all the saints of all time, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Daniel was saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. And God prepared very special works for Daniel. It is all Daniel performed all his works by faith, and his faith was a gift from God. Romans chapter 1 says the gospel reveals God's righteousness. It's not our righteousness. And, and it's revealed from faith to faith. There is no room for works. There's no room for any credit to man. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. From faith to faith. There's nothing in between that. There's no way around that. It's just by faith. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, it's a great uh, prophecy of the Messiah coming. All the prophets were talking about the Messiah. This branch from the line of David, our Lord Jesus Christ from the line of David. And it says, this will be the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. You see, you need to have faith, but you also need to make sure it's in the right object. The faith needs to be. They had their faith in the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or they had their faith in God, the true God, Yahweh. They were looking forward to the Messiah coming. We need to make sure that the Lord is all of our righteousness, that we have put our full faith. We understand that faith is a gift he's given us, and that faith is in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, we have a great cloud of witnesses. All these great saints, they've done such great works. Let's lay aside all these encumbrances and the sin, which it just entangles us so easily. Let's run with endurance this race that is set before us, right? Like, wow, Robert, that, that really sounds like a work. He's talking about running. He's talking about laying aside. He's talking about repenting of sins. That sounds like a lot of work. And it is. We are called to good works. Absolutely. Those are good things we need to be doing. But then he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the originator, the beginning, and perfecter, completion, finisher of faith. Jesus wrote our faith in eternity past, and he perfected it. He completed it. He accomplished it. Jesus did not potentially die for anyone. Jesus actually died to redeem, pay the penalty for all those of all time who would repent and believe in Christ. All those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain before the foundation of the earth. All of this was done. It's a gift of God's grace. And so that's why the book of 1 Peter, it talks about faith, and then it does talk about works. It says, we're protected, and this is very important to the story of Daniel. 1 Peter 1, talk to the church, it says, God's saints, we are protected by the power of God. It's God's power that protects the saints. If it weren't for God, uh, we would all fall away. We would all apostatize. We would all uh, turn and tuck tail and turn on Christ, just like Peter did, or just like Judas did. We're protected by the power of God. And what is that power of God through? Faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed, you've been grieved by various trials. And when we're reading Daniel 6, it's reasonable to think, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm probably not going to be thrown in a lion's den. But Jesus did say, and he's, he's you, he's the Lord, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's reasonable to wonder, okay, Lord, what's my tribulation going to be? How do I prepare myself for it? And he says, the whole point of tribulations, the whole point of these tests is so that the proof of your faith 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Daniel did all of this by faith. That faith was a gift from God. So it doesn't matter how hot the fire of the devil is, the fire of the world is, or any fire God allows you to go through because God is testing the very gift that he gave you. And the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So you need to add to your faith virtue and knowledge doctrine. I need that. You need that. We need to really know if we're in Christ, it is a gift by the sovereign mercy and grace of God. And whatever he has called us to, whether it's a lion's den, a boring day at work, it doesn't matter. Whatever he has called us to, he will literally pull us through. And we need to have our faith in him and not in our ability or in our works. And so moving on, Daniel 6 then goes on to say, the king then gave orders And so now you're going to see people who are not children of God, who are under the wrath of God, and God uses this king to judge them. We see a judgment from God here through the king. The king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast their children, uh, them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This is the Lord keeping his promise, Genesis chapter 3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. He was speaking to Abraham. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the gospel right there. But clearly these men had cursed Daniel, a child of Abraham. And and now God, you know, vengeance is the Lord's. Daniel did not want vengeance. We don't hear of Daniel crying for vengeance. He trusted in God. He wasn't angry at Darius. Vengeance is the Lord, and God is a just judge. And so God poured out this vengeance on not only the people, but their entire families to show his anger here. Deuteronomy 19, he's also, the Lord's also fulfilling his law. If there was anyone who was a false witness in Israel and accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So right within the law, the law of retribution, this is just. They wanted to throw him into the lion's den. They themselves and their entire families were thrown into the lion's den. And we need to understand when God judges in this way, many people, I I speak to many atheists and people who turn away from God because they see him as harsh when God judges an entire family, when, you know, all the children during the flood, I've heard a lot of people say, I could never worship a God who drowned a bunch of children during the flood of Noah's times. We need to understand, we do not question God. We are clay. He is the potter. God is a just judge. Whatever God does is just. The people were not dying solely for the sins of their father. Okay, We all have sinned from our birth. David, King David said, I was born in sin. We enter this world sinners. We all owe a debt to God for our many, many, many sins. And every single day, every human being on earth with life and breath, they they are experiencing the mercy and grace of God. And when God wants to show us his justice and his judgments, we have absolutely no right to question them. When God does something, he is just. Now, I don't mean you don't have the right to question them, as in don't dig into scripture and find out. I mean, don't arraign him at the court of your human reasoning. So yes, if you're having trouble understanding it, Lord, how is that fair? 
Okay, I'm not saying you should ask that question, but if you study it, you'll see how corrupt mankind is and how patient God is with us. And when God chooses and he sh decides to show a group of people justice instead of mercy, we can't say anything. We can't look up to God and say, what are you doing? The Bible says, no, he's just. And when God's righteous judgment is revealed on the last day, it won't be God, you know, why didn't you save more people? It'll be like, Lord, why did you save anyone? You are so holy and we are so wicked. How on earth were you this patient with all of mankind, whether they're your children or not? He is so patient. And so we just need to understand that. And so then Daniel 6.25 goes on to say, Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. Look at Daniel's faithful testimony. Seventy years in Babylon, multiple kings write that everyone should worship the God of Daniel. I believe because of Daniel's faithful witness of these decades, I believe many, many people, Gentiles, came to saving faith in Daniel's God and, and were looking forward to the coming Messiah. Because when Christ was born, people came, wise men came from the East. And it's like, well, where did these wise men from the East come from? And I believe it's very possible. And, and, and you know, honestly, I got this from John MacArthur, uh, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Possibly they were a remnant from the ministry of Daniel. Daniel was a shining light, right? And so it's reasonable. But bottom line, this must have had a massive uh, just effect on the entire kingdom. He writes this letter to everyone. He says, may your peace abound. I now make a decree, a new decree, a new law, that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He still doesn't, it's not like Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't really uh, call Daniel's God anything but the God of Daniel. It's not Darius's God, but look at the respect. He says, he is the living God and enduring forever. He's eternal. He has an understanding of that now. And his kingdom, he talks about his kingdom, is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion, his authority will be forever. It's an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal dominion. He knows that. He says, he delivers and rescues. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He's delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. He gives the glory to God. And I want to give you a sneak preview of Daniel chapter 7 because I want you to open your eyes, beloved. This is amazing. Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter and he talks about this eternal God, this living God, and this eternal kingdom, and this, you know, this, this dominion that will never end, and this king, right? And then Darius writes a very similar letter. He's talking about, you know, the eternal kingdom and the dominion that will be forever. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, remember all the prophets talk about Jesus. In Daniel 7, it says, I kept looking and with the clouds of heaven in a vision, Daniel sees the Son of Man was coming and he comes up to the Ancient of Days. The Son of God goes up to the Father and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom and all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You see this everlasting dominion that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and now Darius both attribute to the living God. Now it's going to the son of man. It says his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. So it's not just the living God's kingdom. It is the son of man's kingdom. And this is perplexing if you just read it in Daniel. But as you put together all of scripture and you see it's all talking about Jesus. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. Just like Isaiah the prophet talked about this coming king. Isaiah 9 the prophet said 700 years before Christ, for a child will be born to us. Speaking of Jesus' human nature, that child was Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. 
a son will be given to us, not born, given. Jesus, the Son of God, the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So that child uh, that was born was Jesus. That son that was given was Jesus, speaking of his, his divinity. It says the government will rest on his shoulders. It's a worldwide. He's going to rule the world. The government rests on his shoulders. And the name of this child is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. A child will be have the name Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. It's talking about an eternal king who is both God and man and rules an eternal kingdom with justice and righteousness. It's Isaiah 9 and Daniel uh, 3, 5, 6, 7 are all talking about this eternal kingdom coming. And there's going to be a person, a man who rules it, a son of man. But he's also going to be God. He's the God man. He's God in G- uh, God in human flesh. And that's why in Luke chapter 1, it's written of Jesus. The angel says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So he is human. His great, 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 great grandfather is David, but he's the son of the most high. He's the son of God in human flesh. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, eternal kingdom. His kingdom will have no end. And so Daniel 6 ends with, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so that is Daniel 6. It is Daniel in the lion's den. I hope you learned a lot. Next week, we'll move on to Daniel chapter 7.